I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, in his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. Ben Jealous draws from his own life, lived on America's racial fault line, to deliver a series of gripping and lively parables that fall on each of us to reconcile, heal, and work fearlessly to make America one nation. Told as a series of parables, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free features intimate glimpses of political and faith leaders, including Jack Kemp, Stacey Abrams, and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Here to discuss his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Ben Jealous. He is the former national NAACP president and current president of People for the American Way, professor of the practice at the University of Pennsylvania, and the New York Times bestselling author of Reach, 40 Black Men Speak on Living, Leading, and Succeeding, Ben, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you for having me on. And I have to share with the audience that when we first chatted, you pointed out you first met me when you were an intern for Leon Panetta, and I was a junior congressman. So in a way, our paths have crossed many times over the years. Yes, many, many times indeed. And yeah, I was a page back when they still had pages in the U.S. House working for Leon. You were on your rise in the Congress. It was something to watch. You know, even as a Democrat, I admired your grit and I admired your ambition. You know, it was clear that you were a force even when you were a junior congressman. I always had the greatest admiration for Leon. I can't imagine a better mentor than Leon Panetta. Yeah, he was great. He had spotted me. I had been an organizer on Jesse Jackson's campaign in Monterey County, California, where he was congressman. And he pulled me right in. He saw something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself. So I'm grateful to him for that. Well, and in that sense, I mean, you've had a heck of a career. But before we talk about your career, I was struck by something about your background. You were born in 1973 in California, 
Your parents, Anne and Fred, married in Washington, D.C., spent some time living in Baltimore, where your mother's family is from. But as I understand it, your parents felt they had to leave Maryland because their cross-racial marriage was literally illegal at the time. Yeah, so they had met as teachers at Harlem Park Junior High. Harlem Park is the poorest neighborhood of Baltimore's 215 neighborhoods. Dad white from Maine, mom black from West Baltimore, and before that, Southern Virginia. And they fell in love. It was 1966, and the law at the time forbade interracial marriages. And in Maryland's case, said that you couldn't return. Like, if you got married somewhere else, you couldn't return to the state without risking prison time. The loving family, who were friends of my grandmother down in Virginia, had actually had the sheriff come into their bedroom in the middle of the night to prove that they were breaking the law. The law at the time prohibited cohabitating as man and wife across racial lines. So my dad literally, Speaker, looked at my mom and said, they already got Loving versus Virginia in the courts. We don't need Jealous versus Maryland, too. And so they left the state. So as I understand it, your father's from an old New England family, and he was disinherited by his grandfather for marrying your mother. That's right. My father's brothers stayed by him. My father's mother stayed by him. His father was deceased, and his grandfather and his uncle conspired to disown and disinherit him. And as the eldest grandson, he was supposed to come into a lot of wealth. On that side, our direct descendants of the founder of the Sargent Hardware Fortune that company was sold in the 90s for $16 billion. Like, I don't know how much of it my father owned, but he had stock that went right back to the founding of the company and had the lion's share of the grandchildren. That was the price he paid. He was disowned. He was disinherited from a very large New England family. So he paid real prices because of his love for your mother. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, my father is the only one of his brothers to never be divorced. He was betrothed at the time to a daughter of a corporate titan, and he swears that my mom saved his life, that he would have been in misery if he had married just for wealth and social position. Instead, he chose to marry for love, and when I was born, we were living in a 400-square-foot house. They really had to rebuild, but he says it was all worth it, and I can't help but believe him. Let me stay with this for a minute more. By itself, this is almost a novel. I mean, you have a whole story before we even get to you. <laughs> and I'm curious, growing up in that context, seeing both discrimination and personal dedication and, in a sense, a very romantic story, but a story with considerable cost attached, how did all that shape you personally? It definitely made me a romantic. You know, my parents' life is a very romantic story. There's very little concerned with either one of them about the material implications. And in the end, it all ended okay. My father's a bit like Job in that respect. He faced great trial, seemed to lose everything. And before the end of the story, it's all come back to him. It also really taught me when people ask me to describe Maine, I say, well, you know, Maine's kind of like Georgia without black people. <laughs> lots of piney woods, lots of poverty. In the 1920s, Georgia was number one for Ku Klux Klan concentration per capita, and Maine was number two. I mean, there were things that you don't even expect necessarily. Most folks historically 
survived making things with their hands, producing things, farming, tree farming. My white grandmother made sure I spent time in Maine every summer, even though we had a lot of cousins around who didn't even know that I existed. And I learned from my uncle, who's a manager in a lumber yard, just about what kind of working class life was like for a white guy in Maine. And it looked a lot like working class life for my cousins in West Baltimore. And so my childhood really underscored for me that we have more in common than we don't. And when we show courage to come together, we often prosper more than we think is possible, no matter what the price was in the beginning. It's interesting because having been the child of two teachers, you obviously grew up with a passion for learning and a passion for education. I was looking at your background. I mean, a BA in political science from Columbia, which is one of our great universities, a Rhodes Scholar, giving you a chance to be in Britain, a Master of Science in Comparative Social Research from St. Anthony's College in Oxford. I mean, you know, that's a pretty stunning level of achievement. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I've gone on to teach at Princeton and Penn. And, you know, it's interesting. One thing that Dave Chappelle and I have in common is that on the black side of the family, our families have gone to college since the end of slavery. And my father, whose family, you know, the way he was raised, he and his younger brother had different existence because my dad was 17 when his father, who was a doctor, died. And his brother was eight. And his brother really grew up working class from the age of nine when mom had to go back to work as a nurse, whereas my father had grown up with all the privileges of having a nanny and going to the country club and stuff that his brother really didn't know. And so my father would say that he was raised to marry a debutante. The only issue was that my mom was the wrong color. But honestly, since I was born, there's been real economic fragility and struggles against downward mobility for the greater family on both sides of that racial line. And that struggle, you know, the struggle of a nation where we've what, shut down 63,000 factories since NAFTA was passed, the struggles of family members with drug addiction, both sides, you know, with untimely deaths at the wrong end of a gun, both sides. And what it really taught me is that both in our triumphs and our ambitions and our struggles, we have more in common than we don't. You sense that whether you're a white in rural Maine or you're a black in West Baltimore, you actually have more commonality in the struggles and the things you're dealing with than you have differences. Absolutely. And what startled me in researching the book is it's always been that way. And working folks, when left to their own devices, figure that out pretty quickly. The real startling moment in the book, speaker, for me was when I figured out that my grandmother's grandfather, you know, I'd been told he was a black statesman during Reconstruction. I was like, okay, I understand that. Turned out he was actually in the House of Delegates in Virginia just after Reconstruction, but before Jim Crow in this transition period. And I was told that he had co-founded Virginia State University. He had helped secure the land or something for that. Okay, you know, public historical black college makes sense, black legislator. What I wasn't told was that he was political partners with a former Confederate general named William B. Mahone. That he and Mahone had created, well, Mahone had created, and he had joined him in building a third party called the Readjusters. That that party had taken over the Virginia government for a few years 
in its entirety, governor, both senators, because the senators were appointed by the state legislature, and they had taken over both houses. And in addition to creating Virginia State, the first public HBCU south of the Mason-Dixon, they radically expanded Virginia Tech, making it the working person's rival to the more patrician UVA. They abolished the public whipping post. They abolished the poll tax. The poor white men, white men without land, had only had the right to vote since like the 1840s. So only about 20 years longer than black men, although we forget that in our narrative about people getting access to the franchise. And they also succeeded in their raison d'etre. What had brought them together, Speaker, was the old plantation-owning class saying that after the Hayes-Tilden Compromise sought to re-exert their dominion over Virginia, saying that they could not afford the free public schools and the Civil War debt. And so the readjusters, their name came from their demand that the state readjust the terms on the Civil War debt so they could maintain the free public schools. And they did that. But imagine that we had been taught that there was an epic, no matter how short, four years or so, when former Confederate soldiers and freedmen got together and took over state governments. Like the political imagination, I believe the 20th century would have been very, very different, let alone that the poll tax was reimposed, not just to disenfranchise 80% of blacks as it would in Virginia, but also 50% of whites, the poorer whites, the non-property owning whites, the ones who had had their right to vote denied until just 20 years before the freedmen had. Again, it's not to say same, same, or everything's exactly identical, but it is to say there's a lot of similarity and that people who, at the end of the day, decide their most important thing is the future of their children are able to find commonality across old lines, even pretty quickly. This was, you know, less than 20 years after the end of the Civil War. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So it's almost like you look for connections rather than divisions. Absolutely. General Powell got to me pretty early when I was president of the NAACP. We had crossed paths a couple of times, but he really wanted to sit me down. Jack Kemp did too. Jack was the chairman of the Commission on the Future of the NAACP, appointed by Julian Bond. And the rule that I learned from Jack was no surprises. He said, Ben, you know, I trust you. I think we have a good relationship, good rapport. Promising one thing, no surprises. I said, yes, secretary, absolutely. With General Powell, his thing was, you're going to be president of the NAACP. Understand it's very easy to figure out what you disagree with people about. The most important thing is to find the one thing that you can agree on. Because we pass laws issue by issue, you know, not 100 issues by 100 issues. So if you can agree on that one issue, you focus on that and you go get it done. Honestly, Speaker, that's the one time you and I really worked together substantively was when you, I think, surprised a lot of people and wrote a letter endorsing the NAACP's criminal justice reform plans. Both of us had been influenced by Chuck Colson, and we had figured out, look, we disagree on matters of the death penalty, we disagree on matters of privatization, but on basic things like people who are addicted need rehab. You know, there was agreement. And... What people didn't know was that Nathan Deal, supported by the Tea Party, a true conservative, also an intellectual and a man who thought broadly and tried to find solutions, and Stacey Abrams, his political opposite, but also an intellectual, a person who thought broadly and tried to find solutions, had found agreement in Georgia that a state that's something more like the 14th largest state shouldn't have the fourth largest prison system. And I mean, the Georgia penal system is notorious because that's how the state starts, right, as a penal colony. And that they wanted to build a consensus in the legislature to shrink the prison system, end unnecessary incarceration, shift people towards rehab, etc. Deal's son was a drug court judge and was pushing for that over dinners. And when I showed up, it was so great, Speaker. I don't know, I think I ever told you this, but we had the NAACP report. It was like 250 pages. And we had a two-page letter of endorsement from you for our findings and we took it to every member of the Georgia legislature. Our theory was that most folks wouldn't read the report, but everybody would read a two-page letter from Newt Gingrich because it was so unexpected to be on top of the NAACP report. <laughs> and that worked, and it helped Governor Deal and Stacey and I all forge consensus in the Georgia legislature, and it saved the state a ton of money. 
And as you know, there's untold families that have benefited because their loved ones got the rehab that they needed. So thank you for that. That's right. More than saving the money, it saved a lot of lives. You know, it's interesting because Governor Deal, his son was a drug court judge. And his son really educated him and said, look, this system isn't working. You may remember we did a two-day conference on criminal justice reform, and Deal came and spoke at it, and I thought gave one of the best speeches on why this was the right path. In fact, I never thought that Nathan had that deep a speech in him, and it was a great speech. Absolutely. To me, I go back to that experience many times. I mean, we were able to replicate it with Perry in Texas, but also it's one of the things that gives me hope. One of the great pains of my life is that so often when there are common problems faced by struggling families, black, white, urban, rural, and obviously a range of other colors and you know groups, but like you, in my family context really has been the South, and that has been defined by you know, the divide between black and white, and except between our rural and urban too, that the full faith of the problem is rarely visible, that the media you know, stereotypes like poverty as a black thing, when there's like 8 million and change blacks in poverty, but 16 million and change whites in poverty. And the trouble there is that when the public sees themselves reflected, their family reflected, their friends, their congregation reflected in a problem, people respond to that. And when they don't, well, they respond to that too. What really underscored that to me, made it not academic, was when public opinion, I discussed this, and the book shifted so dramatically on opiate addiction. And it was in response to Southern Midwestern sheriffs. I mean, honestly, they've been burying a lot of people who they knew from high school, who they knew from church. And yet the problem was still being talked about simply as like a criminal scourge and not as the addiction and health crisis that it was. And so they simply started publishing the photos of the corpses. And when the public saw their community, the entire breadth of it reflected pretty soon the conversation shifted. And, you know, one of the things that I've respected about you, our years kind of crisscrossing, is kind of three things. One, when you believe in something, you have the courage to say it, even if people don't expect it, like giving us that letter that we could use to build consensus around the principles of the report. The second is a real value for education. That report said, look, if states save money, they should prioritize sending it to public universities. Grover Norquist wasn't willing to go there with us, but you did. And our public universities have been the fastest pathway out of poverty for families white and black forever. And the other thing, sir, is I've always felt like you're actually concerned about poverty. You know, Jack was like that too. Not everybody is. Not every Democrat is. There's a lot who aren't. Not every Republican is. But there are those of us who I think understand that there, but for the grace of God, go we, and who have families that are still connected enough to not have completely broken down along lines of economic privilege. People still love each other and know each other and know each other's struggles. And even when I watched you as a young Democratic page in the Congress, I always felt like you were concerned about the lives of the poor and opening up opportunity in this country, even if we had different visions for how to do it. I don't always feel that urgency, again, from Lots of leaders in both parties. One of the projects I'm working on that I'd love to someday get your help with is the whole concept of turning disabilities into capabilities. And instead of looking at a person as disabled, asking yourself, what is it, given all of the modern technology and all the modern knowledge, what is it they're capable of to lead the fullest possible life? 
And we have so many examples we don't even think of. My son was diagnosed with autism, high functioning, definitely on the spectrum of autism. And what had prepared me for that speaker was working in a Silicon Valley, where the joke and the truth is, what do you call autism in the Silicon Valley? A competitive advantage. So many of these programmers would not be the great programmers they are. And I'm talking about people like Bill Gates, I suspect, just having met him, unless they were somewhere on that spectrum. Because one of the things that autism is a superpower for, and I have this conversation with my son, because he's like, no, why can't I be normal? I'm like, so you're telling me you don't want to be a superhero because name a normal superhero. And of course, because he has autism, he went and he researched incessantly until he found there was one character in the 60s who was created simply to be normal, like a sidekick. <laughs> but it's like he wasn't a hero. He's a sidekick. And, you know, he relented. But point was that you can't find a normal, quote unquote, superhero, that they all, you know, are a little different. And in the Silicon Valley, when I told my friends, look, my son was rated very high intelligence, very high functioning Asperger's. And they're like, only question, Ben, is whether he'll be a CEO or a programmer or both. Because in the Valley, it's the guys who are on the spectrum who actually have that advantage. And I think we need to do more of that. You know, Harry Belafonte said to me once, I wouldn't have been half the performer I was if I wasn't severely dyslexic. Huh. That's wild. And we need to create that narrative. It's not to take anything away from any parent or any child who's struggling with being different in a world where we seem to lionize being the same too often. It's just simply to have the other half of the conversation. I want to do both a book and a movie about people who have turned their disability into a capability. Because I think it can really start a conversation that's profoundly different. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I think we all open up new possibilities ultimately for the country. Because when you figure out how to unlock potential and possibility, like we only get stronger. There's no good that comes from denying people the opportunity to make their biggest contribution. Callista and I are doing a movie series right now called Journey to America, where we're interviewing first-generation legal immigrants who've made a huge impact and who are examples of American exceptionalism, although they came from all over the world. Because I think this is the great opportunity melting pot, and we've got to go back to that sense of optimism that these are all great opportunities for us, not difficulties. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want you to chat just a little bit about your grandmother, Mamie Todd Bland. I gather she actually inspired the title of the book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. Now, tell us a little bit, because she by herself is an amazing story. Oh, she is. I mean, this is a woman who has a girl. She was 12 going on 13. Her father shows up with a Model A Ford in pieces, the engines in pieces. And he says, when you can put the engine together, I'll go to the sheriff and get you a county-only driving license so you can take your siblings, older and younger, to school. Because he saw in her somebody he would trust, even though she wasn't the eldest child, to drive all the children to school. And so before her 14th birthday, she's put the entire engine back together, and she's off driving the old Model A with the rumble seat full of her siblings to school. She was a relentless optimist. And I confronted her on that. I'll get to the title of the book in a second. But I confronted her speaker on her optimism, and she said, well, it's true. Now, I just gotten back to the Ivy League, and the Ivy League jades you very quickly. makes you very jaded, and you're really focused on being right. And she said, it's true. Yeah. Pessimists are right more often, but optimists win more often. And in this life, you must decide what's important to you. And as to me, I'll take winning. And I pushed her more, and she said, let me explain to you this way. Life is like a boxing match. The pessimist throws in the towel by the fourth round because for the first three, they got in the round predicting that they would get hit and they would be knocked down. And by the third round, well, that's a trend. So why get in in the fourth? But the optimist, my grandmother explains, like Muhammad Ali in the rumble in the jungle. They get in every round saying, this might be the round I don't get knocked down. And if they get knocked down, they get in the next round saying, this might be the round I don't get knocked down. And when they get in in the 11th, they realize that they've been knocked down so many times that their opponent is getting tired just from having the opportunity to knock them down over and over. And then they realize if they can just pull their energy together, they've got a shot in the 12th because if they're the only one standing in the 12th, they've just won the whole thing. It doesn't matter how many times they're knocked down. And that was her attitude. And it wasn't necessarily the attitude of her siblings. And they had grown up in a family knowing that they were very light-skinned black folks in Southern Virginia because of a number of rapes on the plantation. But my grandmother, in the title of the book, speaker, is this thing she would say, 
And it was clearly an article of faith. The Bible tells us faith is the essence of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And this was both. She would say, never forget our people were always free. When I was young, it made my brain hurt. When I was a teenager, I confronted her and just said, what are you talking about? Three grandparents born into slavery. One your sister believes was a rapist. Like, who was free, Grandma, the rapist? And she just looked at me like she pitied me. Well, when I really got on fire about this book and started digging, I knew she only had months left. She was 103, and you know, nobody in the family had lived past 101, so she was on borrowed time at that point. With the help of Henry Louis Gates Jr. at Harvard and a bunch of other historians, we were able to figure out that this saying, never forget our people were always free, had echoed down the family line. It's another character in the book, a guy who insists he's simply white, no ethnicity, no religion. I mean, I'm just like Wonder Bread. I'm white. And he was saying a sound that echoed down his paternal line. Turned out what he thought was a quote unquote a sound was actually an old Irish curse. His therapist figured it out for him using Google and putting it in phonetically. And so then that struck me, speaker, that my grandmother said that she said it. Her grandmother said it. Her great grandmother said it. It was coming down her maternal line, and we figured out that her maternal line started with a woman who had been enslaved as a pirate. (laughs) She had been captured when she was a pirate and forced into slavery in Virginia. And well, what else would a pirate woman say to the first children born into slavery in the family, but never forget our people were always free? Is your grandmother still alive? She passed away in August, just as I finished the manuscript. I was able to read some of it to her. And I was able to assure her that a lot of her stories would be preserved. I was very worried. The women in the South had time to tell stories over and over and over. Grandmothers, you know, great-grandmothers to grandchildren, great-grandchildren, children. Life was slower, even 50 years ago when I was coming up. And now it's sped up so much, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to convey the stories with which I had been entrusted by my grandmother. So I wove as many as I could into this book both as a gift to my children, of course, but also as a gift to the world. I mean, my grandmother, amongst her protégés, was U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski. She trained her as a social worker. The only time I've ever seen Barbara Mikulski cry in public was talking about my grandmother and her influence. And you know that Mikulski's tough. <laughs> yeah, she is tough. I have to ask you, in addition to your relation to your grandmother, you found out that you are somehow related to Robert E. Lee. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What a shock that must have been. Yeah, and you know, it was funny. It was like things often compound. It wasn't that much of a shock that I figured out that Dick Cheney and I were cousins through Salem, Massachusetts. We're both Willard descendants because he and Barack Obama, it had already been announced, were cousins. So I was like, oh, maybe that's just a thing. You know, black folks are the white parent. You end up being cousins to Dick Cheney. But when I figured out that I was cousins to Vice President Cheney and General Lee, I just had to walk away from my computer. I didn't know what that meant. You can see my COVID beard in my face. For years, I'd had a goatee styled more like Malcolm X. Now I had a beard that actually looks a little bit like General Lee's beard. And I was just staring at myself in the mirror having this out-of-body experience as the former head of the NAACP. Turns out, essentially, we're both descendants of a man named Theodric Bland and connected to Thomas Jefferson as a cousin that way, too. And what it really underscored for me was just how much more connected we are to our fellow Americans through bloodlines, 
you know, the further back you go, the more humanity looks like the trunk of a tree rather than its branches. But even fairly recently, and there's other civil rights leaders. You know, when John McCain came to the NAACP convention, Murley Evers leaned over to him and said, you know, my people come off the McCain plantation in West Point, Mississippi. He looked and says, that's right, John, you and I are related. I grew up with those stories. You may not have, but I did. And he just got quiet. I mean, he was running for president. People are going on like two hours of sleep. You know better than me. He wasn't really prepared. But who wants to disown Merle Evers? If Merle Evers wants to say she's your cousin, like, cool. You clearly know a great deal about your family's background, about your genealogy. What advice do you have for other people? How did you learn this? And how can they go about having a similar experience? Absolutely. The first thing is to listen to your elders, get them on video. My grandmother told great stories. That was pretty easy. My grandfather was taciturn, so I opened up an old family photo album and just said, who's this, who's this, who's this? And then the stories came, just with those prompts of photos. Please do that with your elders. It's invaluable. The next thing, you know, on the white side of my family, I got to tell you, Ancestry.com was hugely helpful because we know the, the names of ancestors into like, say, the 1800s, early 1800s, early 1700s. And once you get back that far, but even if you can just get back to the early 1900s, you will tap into multiple existing family trees and it can really accelerate for those of us who families were recorded, say, in Roman records, getting back millennia. And that's fascinating. On the black side of the family, we hit a dead end around 1850 for most of them, as far as the census. And that's where DNA really first showed up in my life in a profound way. If you're black, there are groups like AfricanAncestry.com, Howard University professors who have mapped the DNA of hundreds of African tribes, and they can help you understand what tribes, you know, your X chromosome or your Y chromosome may go back to. That was powerful for me. But there's also increasingly records of DNA ancestors. So we were able to figure out, for example, just based on DNA, that we descend from William Randolph, that we descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandmother, and that we descend from every English and French king from Edward I to Charlemagne's grandfather. That's wild. That's amazing. I get a sense that you're inherently an optimist. I am. So how do you see America's future? I think we're headed towards a good place. The rebellions of the 1600s in Virginia taught me a lot, both studying now and studying when I was young. Because they start off as rebellions. This is Bacon's Rebellion, 1676, but also the rebellion in Gloucester in 1663, which was the first in 300 years to the year before Martin Luther King's March on Washington. And in each case, including several in between, it was European indentured servants and African slaves rising up together against the king and that king's representatives in the colonies who they felt was treating them and their families unjustly. And the military was used to suppress them, of course, and laws were created to divide the two groups, and yet they kept coming back together. The definition of race in the 1600s was as it had been since the 1100s when the word raza first appears in Italian and then spreads and becomes race in England. It meant genus or type applied to things and tribe or nation applied to people. And so, you know, that's phrases like we Scots are a mighty race or we Irish are a mighty race. That's the old notion of race. The modern definite notion of race, which was a pseudoscientific theory 
that put white Anglo-Saxons like my father at the top and African-Americans like my mother, Negroes at the bottom as subhuman doesn't show up until the early 1700s. And when it does, the effect is definitive and it's actually captured in the slave rolls. Slave rolls in the 1600s listed slaves as people from places and nations as slave rolls had done for millennia before. But when we talk about chattel slavery being different, that shift happens in the 1700s when suddenly captured slaves are not referred to as people from nations. They're referred to as a number of an animal, a number of Negroes, like a number of cattle or a number of horses. And that profound dehumanization is something that's created in this color caste system, something that's created in the context of the American experiment. Anything we can do, you know, we can undo, and it's already falling apart in our communities, in our congregations. I live in a very conservative community in Maryland. Pasadena, Maryland is referred to by the Washington Post as statistically being the most racist community in Maryland because apparently we have the highest number of hate crimes. And even though two of those reports have been from incidents at my own residence, I know most of my neighbors. We got to know each other pretty well during COVID. If we didn't have a dog, we bought a dog. We were all walking our dogs and talking to each other. And even the ones who voted for Trump, we have a lot of things in common. You know, like we love boats. We shoot guns. We fish. We love our children. We're trying to figure out how to make the schools better. We want to believe that the kids have a better economic future than we had. And that's what our conversations are about, are all those things that we have in common. The YMCA locally opens up its pool, and there's a lot of people there with conservative movement hats and T-shirts and speaker. A lot of them have black grandchildren. And you know that hits me because my parents had to leave the state because my mom was black. And I see these very conservative folks. They don't have to tell you they voted for Trump. Their hat tells you that. But they pour endless love into their grandchildren every week at the YMCA. And you see them doing that. And it's hard to act like that doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters hugely. I'm tired of living in a country where every Democrat's a socialist and every Republican's a racist. It's just not true. And our lives affirm that every day. And yet we go on social media or we end up on 24-hour news and that caricature is recurated on a daily basis. It's not doing our country any good. We're much better when we behave in politics the way that we do in our congregations or in our communities, walking our dogs and talking about fishing last weekend. What is your reaction to Maryland now having its first black governor? The last five years, Speaker, have been phenomenal in Maryland as far as racial healing. Until two years ago, our state song referred to Abraham Lincoln as a despot. The children of Maryland sang a state song that referred to the man who had ended slavery as a despot. That was confusing, to say the least. Until four years ago when I ran, the grounds of Maryland State House, what had been the front door historically, had a gargoyle, if you will. It was a statue erected to Chief Justice Taney of the U.S. Supreme Court in celebration of his most famous decision in which he announced the black man had no rights, the white man was bound to respect. We got that taken down four years ago. Ironically, it was the Republican governor, Larry Hogan, who agreed to take it down. It was the Democratic president of the state Senate, Mike Miller, who spent the next week trying to get it put back up. I think it's also healing because we had Democrats say that it was impossible because I had lost and Anthony Brown had lost and they say, Maryland will never elect a black man. And again, you just don't want 
A third of your state's sons and daughters going to bed believing that their color prohibits them from anything. I also take a little pride because Anthony Brown, who had run against Hogan the first time and lost, I had run against Hogan the second time and lost. We had both won our primaries. Sat down with Westmore when he was in fourth place and just thinking about putting his campaign together and we walked through everything that we had learned. You know, we need to tell those stories about the way in which men support each other. I think regardless of our color, the world always sees men kind of battling. <laughs> and there are times when men come together and they support each other's dreams. And this was one of them. I look forward to continue working with you. I'm glad I was occasionally helpful. And I want you to know that my door is open as you have projects where you think I can be useful. I admire greatly the way you have worked. And I admire greatly the way you continue to learn and you continue to grow. I mean, it's really important to this country to have people who are willing to take the risk of being open and willing to take the risk of having enough faith that they will try to create a better future. Well, thank you, Speaker. Thank you for having me on. Talk about my book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. Chapter one starts with me training Dave Chappelle how to shoot. It's a good read. I hope that your listeners will buy it. You know, really pushing the country to see people's unique abilities and not just their challenges. Again, that's been a journey in my own life. That's why I did not run for governor of Maryland this last time. My son had been diagnosed and I needed to figure out how to be a better parent and help him unlock his genius. And so, you know, as Colin Powell said to me a long time ago, he said, if you can find one thing that you agree with somebody on, chances are you will find two or three. We came here talking a little bit about one time when we found something that we agreed on and we found a second. And that excites me. Well, we're going to have Never Forget Our People, We're Always Free, a parable of American healing on our show page and encourage folks to do it. And I'm going to spread the word about this conversation. I think this is the kind of conversation America needs. And I think that it's really remarkable. And I'm very grateful that you would take the time to be with us. Thank you, sir. And I feel the same way. Thank you to my guest, Ben Jealous. You can get a link to buy his new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.